Hello and welcome to episode five of One Immune Voice. This is a podcast on autoimmune and immune-mediated conditions, brought to you by Janssen UK. My name is Claudia Hammond. I'm an author and broadcaster specialising in health and psychology. Now in this series, we've already discussed getting a diagnosis, navigating the healthcare system and the impact that conditions can have on our mental health And we touched on the proactive role that people can take in managing their conditions. And it's not always easy, of course. So in these last two episodes, we thought we'd take a closer look at something known as supported self-management. And as we'll hear, that doesn't mean going it alone. And I'm joined by two guests to talk us through it. And my guess is that there will be something here for you, whether you have a condition yourself or a friend or relative does, or maybe you work in this field. And we're also going to hear from a person called Zoe about her approach to self-managing her condition. Six patient organisations are our partners on this podcast, and we have guests from two of those today. They are Seb Tutnot, who is the co-founder and CEO of IBD Relief, and Sally Dickinson, who is Head of Information and Support Services at the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society. So, Seb, you joined us earlier in the series. Welcome back. Can you remind us what IBD Relief does and why you set it up? Hi, Claudia. Thank you. Yeah, so I work for IBD Relief. Um, It was an organisation that I set up about seven years ago to help patients with inflammatory bowel disease. I did that because I have inflammatory bowel disease myself. I have ulcerative colitis that I've lived with for the last 15 years and just wanted to try and improve and enhance the information and education that was available for patients. And hello to Sally, how are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Well, welcome to One Immune Voice. Can you tell us a bit about your organisation and the condition that you're dealing with? Yes, so it's the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society and we were set up back in 1976 to help support people living with axial spondyloarthritis and there's about 200,000 people in the UK living with the condition and it's an inflammatory arthritis which mainly affects the spine but it can also affect other joints along with the gut, the skin and the eyes. So it's a complex condition to to live with and to manage on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we're here to offer that advice, support, help that people need. So today we're talking about this idea of supported self-management. It's something people may or may not have come across before. So, Seb, what would you say it is? How do you explain it? My perspective on it would be having the support for someone with a long-term condition to give them the ability to do some things themselves. I think there's certainly when I was diagnosed, I kind of felt the doctor was going to fix me and I'm not really responsible for my health. And I've learned over the years, actually, I can play a massive role in, in my health. So it's about enabling patients to do things that's going to help enhance their quality of life, make them feel better, but very much in a supported way. You don't have to do it on your own. And Sally, which aspects of life would you say can come into this? And I've heard it described as being quite holistic. Yes, absolutely. I mean, everyone doesn't just live with a long-term condition. They've got their whole lives to live as well. You know, a partner, mother, father, work colleague, boss, 
that you've got all those things going on in your life and you have to manage what's mainly a painful condition on a day-to-day basis. So it's about putting all those things together and working out how you can best live your life with this long-term condition. So could that mean, say, looking at what you're eating, what exercise you are and aren't doing, all sorts of things? Yes, absolutely. I think it varies depending on what condition you've got. But for axial spondyloarthritis, it'd be particularly about making sure that you have time every day to exercise and stretch. And it's about understanding how to manage your pain, how to manage your fatigue, things like that. And Seb, how important is the word supported in all this? Because it, it could sound as if you're all on your own with this and you're left to manage it, but it's, that's not the idea, is it? Not at all. I think having support is vital with making any changes to your life, be that health or, or even otherwise, having people around you that can help teach you, guide you, go through that process with you, it, it's super important because particularly when it comes to making health or lifestyle changes requires a lot of motivation willpower knowing what you should change and all these kind of different things so there's there's so many different things that you can do and if you don't know what how to go about doing them or you don't have the people around you to support you doing it then it makes it really hard and so sally how would you say people can go about building a support network around them who who could that be I think first and foremost, it it really should be your health professionals. So you really do need to know things like, is there a flares hotline that you can ring if you're struggling? Do you have the number for your biologics nurse? Things like that. So you want to have all your health professionals in place. And then building a community of people who, who also have the same condition and just understand what's going on with you, whether that's a group you go along to physically or whether it's an online forum or an online private Facebook network, just being able to chat to people who might not advise you but just understand what's going on with you that day is just so important. And is there a way, Seb, of involving friends and family as well? I know sometimes friends and family want to help but might feel helpless in a way and not know what they can do. Is there, are there things that they could do and join in with the support? Definitely. I think if someone wants to make a change, there's a lot of talk about changes to diet or improving movement, exercise, and lots of things around mental health as well. They're all things that improve health generally. So regardless whether you have a long-term condition or what, they're going to hopefully make you feel better. So for friends, family, if you can make some of those changes with that person, then it really helps them feel like they're not alone and not a burden. If you need to cut out a particular food from your diet or you wanted to increase the number of vegetables you're eating or something like that, if everyone does that with you rather than you feel like you're the only one doing that, then that can really help. And also things like if you want to go for more walks, if people can come with you, then that makes it more enjoyable and makes it feel less like a challenge. And of course, it can be difficult asking people to do things. How can you go about having these conversations to get this started? Communication's really important and being open and honest with people about how you're feeling. And I know certainly from my own experience, you can be worried that you are a burden on your friends and family or your partner being honest with them about how you're feeling being honest about 
the things that you'd like to maybe try to to help yourself and see if they can help you on that journey as well. And Sally, I wonder if there's anything that, that you would add to that, because I know that you're, you're talking to people all the time on the helpline. How, how can people get friends and family involved? I think if you're going to have those conversations with friends and family, it's good to have them on a good day when you're feeling quite strong, quite positive, you're not in too much pain. It's a hard conversation to have on the days when you're, you just want to hide under the covers and not speak to people. So I think preparing for those bad days and talking about how you can feel and how to support you when you're having a bad day. If you can do those in advance on the good days. That is just the kind of practical tip we really like here. And we're going to have some more tips as well now, because I think it's time to hear from Zoe, who has lived with axial spondyloarthritis for 10 years. And she struggled for a long time to get the right diagnosis. And here is how she manages now. I experience a lot of fatigue and I experience fatigue daily. So it's something I've just learned to live with. Just the severity of it really fluctuates day to day or week to week. I do find fatigue is the most difficult aspect of my condition to get under control. And also emotionally, I think it's the most frustrating symptom as well. I do find for fatigue that pacing is the best thing to do for it. So I try to pace my energy levels and try and avoid that boom and bust cycle. Um, So on days where I feel like I have a lot of energy, I try to make sure that I'm not really using all of that energy because otherwise I'll find that the next day or for a few days afterwards, I'll then have a lot less energy because I've overdone it. Over the years, I've built up a lot of skills in, in managing my symptoms and I've got a lot of different tools to use. So I've created almost like a a flare toolkit where it's one place that I go to where I have all of the things that can help me during a flare. So I have things that can help with pain, I have different medication options, you know, massage techniques and things like that. But I also always always have the contact details for my healthcare professionals there because then it acts as that reminder that I've got them to reach out to for support and advice if all of those self-care techniques aren't working um, and aren't getting things under control. I like to think that supported self-management is me working together with my healthcare professionals to best manage my condition and the impact that it has on my life. And it should really be a balance because ultimately living with a lifelong condition that causes daily symptoms means that I'm self-managing to some extent every single day. But it's just me over the years learning how and when I should be getting that advice from my healthcare professionals to help me alongside those self-management techniques it can feel like a lot of pressure and when people say supported self-management it's really easy to think of it as you're being left to manage things on your own but it's really not it's it's giving you the knowledge and and the confidence to help you manage your symptoms as much as you can so that it has less of an impact on your day-to-day life so for me supported self-management really is recognizing that I'm the expert in my body and in how my condition affects my life but my healthcare team are the experts in the condition and the way to medically manage it so much to talk about there. Very interesting there from Zoe. Sally, what did you make of Zoe's experiences? I think it's fantastic that Zoe's really accepted her condition and taken it on board in her life. I think that's possibly one of the hardest things to do when you're diagnosed with a long-term condition. You might just want to, to push it away and ignore it and almost pretend it's not happening. But if you can get to the point where you've accepted it, that you learn what's working for you, that you listen to the health professionals, you read guides, watch videos, then you could end up in a, in a much 
better place, I would say, like Zoe has. And, and I think, you know, what Zoe's described has probably taken 10 years of work to get to that point. And I was interested to see that Zoe said that in a way she's self-managing every day. I, I guess in a way that that's what what everyone is is doing to an extent. It's interesting that she says you could think of it as being left to manage on your own, but it's not like that. Seb, it is all about trying to work with health professionals as well at, at the right time, isn't it? Definitely. If you are struggling with your condition, then it's really important to share that with them. Sometimes we, we can be scared to share everything. So think my doctor is a specialist in my case gastroenterology and I might think they're not going to be interested in my mental health or my fatigue or some other symptoms so sharing those with them is important because it might be a sign that they can enhance your treatment or there's lots of different things that you can do to to help yourself. And what did you make of what Zoe had to say? I think it's a very typical story of lots of people not just those with with the condition that she has certainly lots of people with IBD struggle with fatigue really badly I did myself having that plan in place and those things that you can do to turn to is really important and I've certainly done that myself over the years I have lots of different things I can now turn to 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 help make me feel better on the subject of fatigue what I found I had very similar views to her in terms of managing my energy but what I've actually learned over the last few years is my energy levels aren't I'm not like an electronic device that has a battery that gets filled up when I sleep and then gets emptied throughout the day. Actually, lots of different things affect my energy. Being around positive people and friends and family and people that, that I enjoy spending time with, spending time outside, going for walks and, and things that I might think would expend my energy actually give me more energy if that makes sense. So we think of it as that battery being topped up and and emptying, but it's a lot more complex than that. And I I sometimes feel when I had that mindset, it made me not do stuff that maybe I wanted to do because I was like, I'm I'm worried that I'm going to run out of energy. Um, But actually now I realize that by doing some of those things, actually it does give me more energy. Um, Hopefully that makes sense. And is that through trial and error? Because everyone's going to be different. So is it a question of every person? You working out what does work for you and what doesn't? Yeah, definitely. Over the years, I've become super, super in tune with my body and and realizing, okay, this thing has this impact and this thing has impact. It's super hard to unpick some of those things and, and you can end up overthinking some of these situations. But there's times where... I can feel really low on energy and really bad. But then when I'm put in a situation where my mind is taken off it, so being around people and having fun, or I I enjoy playing football now, which I didn't think I would be able to do before. And when I actually get into the game, then I forget about that I'm tired and then I just run after a ball and forget about those things. So actually, I think mind plays such a key role in this as well. Sally, I was interested in the idea Zoe had there of having a flare toolkit, of having everything in one place for when she needs it. So is it a question of preparing in advance for the time when you might feel at your worst? Yes, absolutely. If you wake up and you're feeling in so much pain, you're maybe really stiff, you feel completely wiped out, 
that's not the time when you need to start thinking of what what's the first thing I can do? What can I do to make myself feel better? Because we get calls on the helpline from people in those situations. And I, I think people are panicking almost, not being logical. You just want things to get better. And so if you can have a, an actual toolkit, maybe a drawer next to your bed where you just put everything in that's going to help you if you have a flare and you can go to that and you can see, oh, this is the extra medication I can take. These are the stretches I can do. Here's my hot water bottle that I can put next to me. Here's this thing I can rub into my skin to make myself feel better. Even things like a sort of a playlist that you that you enjoy that you can relax to. I think having all that there, even if you don't remember it, then hopefully a family member or a partner or a friend will say, what about your flare toolkit? Have you looked in there? What should you be doing? What's the first thing you can do? So I think having all that ready is is just really important. And is that because at the time when you feel bad, you, you you feel too bad to then go about collecting all those things and thinking of all those things and doing them. So it's a thing to do when you're feeling better. Yeah, absolutely. Think in advance what's going to help you. Even things like TENS machines, uh, having ice packs ready, having the little heat pads ready, all those things ready. And then you don't have to think about it at the time. It's just that. I spoke to someone the other day and they said whenever they have a flare, they always forget to take their medication. It just goes out of their mind. So they have a flare buddy. And whenever they have a big flare, they call their flare buddy. And the first thing their flare buddy says is, have you taken your extra medication? And they always say, oh, no. So just having a flare buddy who has all that and understands what's in your kit and will and is there for you during those times is so helpful. And Sally, I've heard people say it's important to try to be really self-aware when it comes to your condition and, and its limitations in a way. Why is that? You don't want to be thinking about things all the time. You don't want your long-term condition to be dominating your life. But you do need to be aware of maybe when the pain's on the increase, maybe when you're starting to feel really exhausted. So I think being self-aware is really important. And at what stage, Sally, would you say you should look elsewhere for help rather than, I don't know, trying to do it alone or with friends and family? How do you know that you should look somewhere else? I think that's very tricky. I think it's it's individual. And also, I think it comes with time. When you've just developed a condition and you've just had a diagnosis, you're probably reaching out to health professionals a lot or helplines a lot. But over time, people with axial spinal arthritis, symptoms start in their mid-20s. So five, 10 years down the line, people are much more aware of what's working for them. But it is important to know when something's quite different, to know when something's going wrong and to actually speak out. Don't always just think, oh, it's my XX condition, that it must be just that. It might be something else. You might have covid or flu or you've developed diabetes so you need to be aware of of when to reach out for support seb who can people turn to for more help it's important to remember that healthcare professionals aren't always the best trained in lifestyle things so they have very little training in nutrition or movement or mental health um, and it's improving there's lots of different things that you can do and hopefully they can support you with making those decisions but you 
don't always maybe wait for them to bring those things up. It is your health. If you're going to wait for your healthcare professionals to to really help with those things, you might be waiting for quite some time. So it, it does require you to kind of drive that forward. And that, that's certainly what I learned. It took me about five years to maybe realize that, that actually I have a role here. I can make some changes and, it, and it's taken a long time. It's lots of little changes and little steps towards improving my health. But I've learned a lot of those from other patients and other people that have gone through this. Are doctors always encouraging of people self-managing or does it depend on the doctor? I think it very much depends. In my personal experience, I wanted to try to improve my stress or improve my diet. It's sometimes been a bit dismissed and I don't blame them for that. I think the doctors want to practice what they would call evidence-based medicine. So when there's strong evidence for doing something, then that's when they want to use it. And the problem is with particularly around mental health, diet, sleep, um, movement, stress management, there just isn't the evidence there yet to say that one thing is going to have a, a significant impact on a particular condition. But I think we also need to remember that a lot of these things have been shown to be very good for your health. So even if sleep, for instance, hasn't been proven to make a difference to IBD or whatever condition you have, there's lots of evidence to say that, that sleep has a, has a massive impact on your general health. And if your general health is better, then you're going to be more resilient with your condition. So I think they don't necessarily know the answers there. They like to stick to things that they know and the evidence is growing, then they're, they're being more open to these things. Sally, where would you suggest people go for more help with this whole idea of supported self-management? Ideally, your health professional is always your first port of call just to sort of set you off along the right route. But we do understand that appointments are not always easy to come by. And, you know, we've heard about people waiting months and months for appointments with specialists. So I would definitely say there's patient organisations out there. There's obviously us and there's IBD relief, but there's almost certainly one for whatever condition you have with with lots of knowledge and often lots of resources so I would definitely be reaching out to patient organizations and I would just say Google is a fantastic thing I would just say just stick to, to the UK and reputable patient organizations NHS things like that and there's so much information and help out there do either of you have any final tips for people on, on how to make things easier if they are thinking more about this whole idea of self-management? Seb? Go and speak to other patients if you haven't already and particularly find the ones that are doing really well. There can be a fear of of, of talking to them, but I think you, you can learn so much they they've kind of gone through these things they've found that experience they've figured out what works for them and, and yes everyone's different so those things might not always work for you but if you can learn from other people see what people are doing take the positives from that try and apply those themselves and do it in lots of little steps it's not an overnight fix it takes a long time it's lots of hard work there's lots of challenges along the way and like we said earlier having a support network around you to support you with those changes then hopefully you can start to make a difference.
I was struck there that you said that there may be a fear of talking to the people who are doing well. Why is that? Particularly when it comes to lifestyle changes, you can blame yourself or you feel like it's my fault that my diet's not good enough or it's my fault that I'm too stressed. So we can be reluctant to maybe address some of those challenges. I think it's really easy to sort of try and compare yourself to people. I have lots of friends with OBD and they look to me and they're like, Seb's just, I don't know, superhuman or I can never be like that. But they forget that I was really sick at one point and it, it does take a lot of work. And I think ultimately we need to sort of celebrate the people that have managed to do that and actually try and learn from them rather than feel sort of a negativity towards them. So maybe it's a question of looking to see what things you can take from, from different places, from different people and what might or might not work. Sally, do you have any, any final tips for people to make things a bit easier? Be kind to yourself. Have some self-compassion. People I speak to are always sort of very upset because they haven't managed to a full hour's exercise and pick their children up from school and cook a dinner and clean the house. You don't have to do all those things. You just need to be making small changes, small steps. If you need to cope with axial spondyloarthritis, ideally you're going to be exercising every day. But that doesn't mean that you've got to go out, go to the gym and do an hour and a half workout. You could do some little exercises around the house and walking down to the shops is, is exercise as well. So I think just being a bit kinder to yourself, you're living with a long-term condition and start making, you know, as Seb said, just quite small changes and make one change at a time and see how that goes rather than saying, well, I'm going to start exercising, change my diet, stop smoking and, you know, all these other things. Just, just pick one thing and do that at a rel fairly small level and see how that goes, see what improvements that makes. Some very useful tips there. Well, that is all we have time for in this episode. But thank you so much to Seb Tucknott from IBD Relief and Sally Dickinson from the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society. And thank you so much to Zoe as well earlier for sharing her experiences with us. And thank you for listening. And if you found this useful, don't forget you can like, share and subscribe to One Immune Voice on whichever platform you use. Do join me for the final episode of this series of One Immune Voice, when we'll be looking Looking at exactly what kind of support you can get through patient organisations. I'm Claudia Hammond. Bye for now. One Immune Voice is a podcast series initiated and funded by Janssen UK. All participants have been reimbursed for their time. The views, information or opinions expressed during One Immune Voice are solely those of the contributors and do not represent the views of Janssen UK. The primary purpose of One Immune Voice is to educate and inform. It is not a substitute for professional diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should contact their prescribing physician if they have any concerns about their treatment.